the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. Hello and welcome to episode number 147 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, September 8th, 2014. For those of you who are tuning in for more information on permaculture and sustainable agriculture, I will let you know right now that this episode doesn't feature too much in that regard. There is some brief discussion of permaculture, but this is a more free-flowing conversation with uh, the creator of the Sea Realm podcast, KMO. And it is a little change of pace for this podcast, but KMO has been on the podcast before, and I know that some of the people who listen to this podcast also listen to the Sea Realm. And for those of you who are just tuning in uh, for KMO from the Sea Realm community, Welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast, and hopefully you will continue to join us as we talk about other themes in the future, specifically related to permaculture, sustainable agriculture, and many other natural resource management concerns and issues. Right before we get into this interview, I will let you know that for a lot of the previous, most recent episodes of the podcast, I've been using a Logitech headset, and that was the case with this interview with KMO. And the audio quality is not superb. Um, I am now using a real microphone, as I used for many years on this podcast. And then when I took a break, my old uh, podcasting rig was kind of out of commission. I've since rehabilitated that, and I'm back on a real microphone. And hopefully the audio quality is just a little bit better than the Logitech headset. So enjoy my interview with KMO of the Sea Realm Podcast. You are listening to the Agro Innovations Podcast, and it is my pleasure to introduce once again, repeat guest, KMO of the Sea Realm Podcast. KMO, last time you were on the Agro Innovations Podcast was November 15th, 2010. Episode number 111. And prior to that, you were on the podcast on April 20th, 2009, episode number 49. And so that's quite a while ago, and I'm sure quite a lot has changed for you since you last were on the Agro Innovations podcast. Yeah, absolutely. The last time I was on your show, I spoke to you by cell phone, and I think I was in my truck in the driveway at the place where I lived in Maryland, as I recall. And maybe I was sitting in a folding chair in the back of the truck. Okay. I know you were uh, the first time we spoke working at Comcast, and the second time we spoke, you were in Tennessee, I believe, at by that point. And okay. now you are living in New York City. I live in Brooklyn now, yeah. So tell us about, uh, just briefly, that transition from rural Tennessee to probably one of the most urban places in the country. <laughs> yeah, no, it, was, it was quite a transition, but I've had family here in New York City my whole life, and I've been coming here my whole life, so it wasn't all that huge a uh, 
culture shock for me. But last time you were on the show, we were talking about your evolving relationship with the collapse narrative. And when you were on the show in 2010, uh, you're, you, at that point, you had rejected the collapse narrative according to that episode of the podcast. Um, but in 2009, you were pretty deep into it. So that's, uh, an evolution and I'm sure your relationship to that narrative has continued to evolve since we last spoke. So would you care to say anything about that? Well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, uh, <clears throat> I think in 2009, when I was working at Comcast and really, really hating it, uh, I was probably a little bit hungry for a collapse and more, uh, more amenable to that narrative. Now my life is pretty good. And, you know, if I had my, my preferences, uh, there would be no collapse, but I can't really say that I've rejected the, the collapse narrative. I certainly haven't rejected the, the significance of, uh, constrained resources and, Oil, which is just getting, you know, more difficult to obtain and uh, more expensive. I think we're going to see we'll, we'll be living through, and we are living through the consequences of peak oil. Um, I've gravitated much more to John Michael Greer's notion of an extended decline of industrial civilization over the course of a century or so. But even John Michael Greer says that that will be punctuated with uh, episodes of discontinuity and extreme upset and. I think he's probably right about that, and certainly that will seem like a collapse to the people living through it. So, I think I'm I'm distanced from the um, the, the psychological uh, constellation of influences that made me receptive to collapse, where most people are not. Uh, and now that I, I'm I am distanced from those those influences. But I still have, you know, I retain all of the uh, the information that I have acquired through all the interviews that I've done. I still have to take that seriously. So I, I do still live sort of in the shadow of impending collapse, even if it's local and temporary and, and really just part of a, a long trajectory of decline. So that you've made peace with that possibility in some ways. Pretty much. It's, it's the sort of – maybe different people have different constitutions and can maintain a, a sort of distressed relationship to knowledge like that for years on end, but – I don't have that personality. I mean, having faced it and lived with it for a long time, I, it's really lost any sort of um, – it's not a source of anxiety for me at all. Well, and I notice you don't talk about it on the sea realm very much anymore. I, you know, I've said about as much as there is to say on the topic until events catch up to you know the conversation. So what to what extent is – because there's two ways to look at this, right? I mean, there's the – realization of this possibility and learning how to interpret data in the news or in your everyday life according to this narrative and framework of viewing the world. And there's that process of coming to understand all the implications of it. And you've gone through that process. So to what extent are the conversations you find valuable now more centered around how to just be present as that process unfolds? Well, I don't know that that's my focus. I've switched a lot to um, uh, an economic analysis, and I'm open to voices that I used to not be particularly open to, particularly uh, Marxist voices or voices from the far left. And 
I, I, I'm not really advocating that um, we should just focus inward and get right with ourselves and, you know, the world will be made right uh, by our inner transformation. I'm, I'm still, I encourage people to, to look at things, look at the, the world situation, to watch the news with an understanding that there are unacknowledged forces and pressures that shape very large scale um, aspects of our society, of our global civilization even. And I, I certainly, you know, like I, I practice yoga now. And I do it several times a week and I, I do work study at the, the yoga studio. So I'm, I'm there and I'm around that environment all the time. And it's, it's beneficial to me. I certainly wouldn't give it up voluntarily. And at the same time, I, I don't think that it is the answer or the way to proceed, you know, to simply write off the larger scale. Well, uh, I, I think part of the implication of my question is, not not so much is collapse real is it happening what does it mean what does it look like what should i do but what are the things that were, are within my power to affect change on the world around me that's a question with a frustrating answer because there is so much which is uh, very important to us which has an enormous impact on our quality of life and our daily experience that we seem to have no control over whatsoever so the Obama administration, and particularly in the, the person of John Kerry, seems to be hell-bent on starting a war with Russia. And if not necessarily a hot, active war, at least a return to Cold War proxy fights. And that just seems the height of madness to me, and it's being done in my name. Somebody in another country might talk about Americans doing this or doing that and include me in that group of people. And I want nothing to do with that program. Um, and yet... You know, I, I don't seem to have much choice in the matter. I'm caught up in the same current that everybody else is. So it's it's not a satisfying answer to your question, I'm afraid, but it's it's an unresolved source of, uh, I can't really say anxiety anymore, but maybe sort of a low-level background frustration with just the way things are. Well, but but we do have choices about certain things, and we make those choices every day. One thing that I picked up on, and you haven't, really mentioned this in a while, but a while back you were making the, the comment, and it was almost in passing in some cases, that the people who are in, uh, who are wealthy in this society in the United States and elsewhere around the world are perfectly happy for people like you and I to choose poverty because then we basically become marginalized figures. We don't really have any impact on policy or economics or land management or anything of significance. And so this idea that you're going to drop out and have a permaculture farm in the middle of nowhere, while it's uh, a lifestyle that many people choose, and I don't think it's a bad choice, it also seems like there are some advantages to that lifestyle uh, for people who are controlling the means of production. Absolutely. I mean, if you give up your demand that you maintain the quality of life that your parents enjoyed during the height of the, the petroleum-fueled expansion, that makes it a lot easier on the people at the top of the pyramid. If you are very vocal in insisting that you do notice the fact that your circumstances are greatly diminished and that you're not happy about it and that you demand that the people in charge or the people with resources do something to correct the situation and you make a pain of it, you know, you become a pain for them. Well, they would much rather have you go and be a happy, voluntary peasant someplace. 
how prevalent do you see this attitude of withdrawal amongst people that you speak with and are engaged with? I think it's pretty fringe. Um, it's it's a very small percentage of the population that gravitates to that that image of what life could be, you know, simplified and away from the cities and you know, being responsible largely for one's own subsistence. Uh, but you know, something that is fringe, which is it represents just a tiny portion of the population. If it's a large population, that's a a sizable subgroup. So you can spend your you know, your entire working life for your entire uh, intellectual life looking at examples of people doing that. And I know that to a large extent, that's what you do. And I think it's certainly worth doing. Well, but I, and I think this is kind of what I'm getting at is that it seems to be a very prevalent attitude amongst people who practice permaculture and regenerative agriculture. And I find that curious and in some ways self-defeating. But I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, I know you've interviewed a lot of permaculturists permaculturalist yourself and have visited a lot of these places around the country as well. I have. And when I lived at the Eco Village Training Center, a lot of those people came to where I was. So, yeah, I've, you can immerse yourself in a tiny subculture and see you know, little else, particularly if you, um, you don't have the means to travel and you're basically you've, – you've voluntarily gone someplace and adopted a certain lifestyle and then you no longer have the resources to easily extract yourself from it and return to the default world. One thing that is a source of uh, frustration and dissatisfaction for me in terms of permaculture is the fact that the successful permaculture operations seem to rely on free labor, which to me doesn't seem like a sustainable business model unless you've got an infinitely renewable supply of people who are willing to be exploited for a time before they wake up and realize, you know, this really sucks. I would rather get paid for my backbreaking labor. Um, that's That's my main... I wouldn't call it a criticism exactly, but it's the main observation that I have to share. Recently, in this week's episode of the Sea Realm podcast, you spoke with a science fiction author, and one of the themes that you guys had uh, in that show was this notion of futures that are fragmented. And one of the areas that you focused on was the fragmentation of knowledge, where people um, – are attributing in this techno future that this science fiction author describes, uh, people are attributing what's happening to them to gods and uh, voodoo and curses and these types of things, whereas really the interactions are determined by very highly advanced technologies managed by an elite technocratic oligarchy. And I think that this idea of fragmented futures is very interesting and one of the pieces of news that's coming out today is the people in Liberia who are in the midst of an Ebola outbreak don't believe that Ebola is a real thing. And they think that the government is trying to pull the wool over their eyes or they think it's some type of hex or curse by the local witch doctor. And this is creating all sorts of problems for the healthcare workers out there, as you can imagine. In the United States, we have a large proportion of the population who doesn't believe evolution is real. This fragmented future that you described in your most recent episode of the Sea Realm seems like a real thing. What other characteristics of that fragmented future do you think are interesting? Well, yeah, the certainly the access to uh, material wealth, the access to uh, power, not like political power so much, but just you know the power that comes out of the wall – um, these things will certainly define 
very different lifestyles for people. You know, if you look at the the amount of uh, resource usage of somebody in Liberia or say in in Haiti, uh, and compare that with somebody living a suburban lifestyle in the United States, you know, with uh, two cars and living a very long way from either uh, a place to get food or a place to work, you know, and having a, a very large enclosed space that is temperature controlled, even when the, the occupants aren't around to enjoy it. Um, you know, that's a very fragmented present that we live in. And that's interesting. But yeah, I think what's even more interesting is what you've touched on is that in the United States in particular, we have a, a very strong, well-funded, well-organized movement to make people stupid, to make them completely uh, ignorant, to, to put them into a reality tunnel that is really, really at odds with the available evidence. But because it is tied to people's uh, self-worth and their cultural identities and, you know, to some extent, their racial identities, they're they're encouraged to believe it and they're strongly motivated to believe it. And... It seems like the longer this goes on, the harder it is to remedy because you get just deeper and particularly as people become more impoverished and more immiserated, they're going to cling to comforting stories which seem to validate their lifestyles and their choices and their cultural traditions. And um, in general, it just seems like there's this notion and this is something that I think you'll encounter in the uh, the sort of secessionist people, the secessionist mindset, the, the people who think I'm just going to go start my permaculture farm, I'm going to drop out of the system, I'm going to radically reduce my my expectations in terms of my material standard of living. There's also an accompanying notion that says the worse things get materially for the bulk of the people, the better that is for those of us trying to prompt some sort of positive transformation. Uh, Marxists sometimes think this, but also, you know, somebody who has no... Uh, no affinity whatsoever with with Marxism. They just think, you know, we need to transition to renewable energy. We need to transition to sustainable agriculture. We need to transition to a, a, a more um, enlightened mode of just being in the world. They think that as long as the middle class is comfortable, that they're never going to make any change. But once they become uncomfortable, once they become deprived, then there's a, an opportunity for people who are pushing a positive agenda to really get their message across and have more people take it up. So there's this idea that as the, the economy gets worse, as jobs become more scarce, that this is all really good, that this is driving some positive development. And it doesn't really work that way historically. You know, revolutions tend to come in times of rising expectations. And the labor movement was strongest when the economy was at its best and, and jobs were well-paying and there were plenty of them. So I think it's... You know, it's almost a truism. It's almost not worth saying. Uh, but the worse things get, the worse things get, I think. I, I see a lot of people mobilizing to make change. But as I say, in a huge population, a population of 300 million people, a tiny fraction of them, a statistically insignificant fraction of them, still is a lot of people. And you can immerse yourself in that culture. Uh, but there's been a lot of um, a lot of hope, I think, pinned on... Rapid prototyping, um, you know, 3D printers, sort of uh, village in a box technologies. And I went to the the Hope X. This is Hackers on Planet Earth uh, congregation convention here in New York City last month. And I went to a uh, a workshop on 3D printing. 
And that technology is anything but user-friendly. It's really, it's still wizardry to the average person. And I don't see that moving very quickly in a direction where it's going to be widely distributed and non-specialists will be making use of it. So there's a lot of things that just sound really promising and hopeful on the surface. And then you, you dig down and you see that there's a lot more resistance to change than is immediately apparent and certainly a lot more than the, uh, the enthusiasts and the, the evangelists would have you believe. So do you not see, I mean, is, don't, do you not see that there is some great potential for the specialists to emerge in a more democratically organized type market economy as a result of these technologies? Well, the, the setup costs are much lower than with traditional manufacturing. So in that respect, yes, if you can set up an operation for $20,000 that a few decades ago would have required tens of millions of dollars, certainly that's more democratic. And uh, everybody could be described as a specialist of some type, right? I mean, you're certainly a podcasting specialist and have really figured out a routine and a technological configuration and a number of other arrangements that make it feasible for you to be a full-time podcaster. So I'm not sure it would be much different with a full-time 3D printer manager. (laughs) Well, I had to really push and really sacrifice in order to achieve the life that I have. And I think that there is still – there's a narrative that people live by that you you, you get your education and you get yourself a good job – and you are affiliated with some powerful entity like a corporation who can take care of you, and you enter into this compact. And um, it, you know, there are lots of examples you can point to of people who have rejected that lifestyle and who have rejected that narrative and who have gone their own way and done something worth doing and you know achieved something that is enviable. But I don't. Again, I think it's there are a lot of examples that you can draw from a statistically insignificant fragment of the population. Yes, and this brings me to another topic that I'd like to address in this conversation, and I don't know how much truck this particular topic has with you, although I'm sure you've experienced the culture of bureaucracy in the United States uh, extensively in your lifetime, as we all have, whether we've experienced it through universities or through workplaces or some combination thereof. And I was reading a critique recently of bureaucratic culture in general. It's not something that gets discussed really much in the mainstream media or anywhere else, but there is a very particular culture that comes along with bureaucracy and with working in a bureaucratic environment. Many, many of the people in American society work and live in that type of environment day after day. I wonder what your thoughts are on how – that bureaucratic culture is affecting our society in ways that we may not even be aware of or perceive? Hmm. That is an interesting question. I don't know that I have a ready answer uh, at hand. But uh, bureaucratic culture, I mean, when I think of the problems that bureaucracy causes, the the main source of the problem is that the bureaucracy – as an entity which endures through time has to prioritize its own continuance and its own growth over anything else, particularly over, say, serving the needs of the people uh, that it was created to serve. So 
if you go to say the uh, the DMV or whatever it's called in the state where you live, you know the the Department of Motor Vehicles, and you're trying to get a driver's license or some certification for your car, and you know what you need, you know that this organization is there to facilitate you getting that, but then you get there and you're so frustrated by all of this, this picky little nonsensical stuff which can derail you and cause you to have to leave without your goal being achieved. And you think, what's what's the point of that? But the person who seemed to either be completely indifferent to your needs or to take some sort of sadistic glee in denying you what it was you were seeking, you are just a a passing phenomenon for them. I mean, you're one face in a continuous, unending sea of faces that step up to their their window. They have to have an ongoing and enduring workable relationship with the bureaucracy. So they have to serve the needs of the bureaucracy first. And if in serving the needs of the bureaucracy, they can also help you out and they're in a mood to do so, well, then they might. But that's not why they're there. You know, They're there to draw a paycheck and they draw a paycheck from this entity of which they are a part and they service its needs first. And I, I think so much dysfunction in our society flows from that that basic fact. If people haven't read it, and I know a lot of people haven't because as John Michael Greer likes to point out, people seem to be allergic to reading anything that was written more than a couple of years ago. But there's a fantastic book. I think it's probably from the 50s or 60s. It's called The Peter Principle, Why Things Go Wrong. And everybody, I think, is probably familiar with the, the basic formulation of the Peter Principle, which is that in any hierarchy, each individual will rise to his or her level of incompetence and then stay there. Which is to say, as long as you're good at what you do, you can get promoted. When you finally get to a place where you're not good at what you do, what you do, so long as you're not super incompetent, so, not, so long as you're not catastrophically incompetent at the job, you won't be fired, but you won't be promoted anymore. So organizations become top-heavy with people who have achieved their level of incompetence and are stuck there. And there are many, many corollaries and, and more fine detail uh in this book, and this book is written in a humorous tone, or it seems like it's written in a humorous tone, but it's really, uh, it's, it's insightful. And it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was written long before the computer age. It was written long before a lot of the things that we think of being really central to our life experience now came to be. But if you go and you read it, you'll see that so much of what we think of as arising from online culture is really just a different manifestation of patterns of human interaction that have been going on for a very long time. So if people have not read The Peter Principle, I'm sure you can find it in a used bookstore for a quarter. And if not, it's probably online for free somewhere. But it's it, great. It sounds like it was uh, Scott, or is it Doug Adams, or Scott Scott Adams, the guy who created Dilbert? It sounds mm -hmm. like that would have been his favorite book when he was 13. <laughs> Certainly, it, it could be a, a source of great creative inspiration for writing a comic strip like Dilbert. You know, I, I, I also think that this bureaucratic culture that we're talking about infects our society in insidious ways that we're not aware of. Think about a person who has worked in a bureaucracy for 30 years. They have internalized so many of the habits and thought processes, some of which you just referred to, but I'm sure there's a number of other thought processes that come along with operating in an environment like that, and they've internalized them and made them part of their personality and way of 
living and interacting with people, whether they're at work or not. And so it feeds into the family. Uh, it feeds into friendships and all other areas of life where we wouldn't necessarily expect to find that type of mentality. Yeah, I, I think of journalism when you, you say that because journalists in the, the U.S. will particularly, you know, in, in newspapers to whatever extent newspapers still exist and also TV journalism, uh, reporters and writers and editors will insist up and down that there is no overt censorship, that they are never told, oh, you can't report on this or you can't say that or you can't ask this question. And that is, and you know, I'm just cribbing from Noam Chomsky here, but that's because the reporters have internalized the values of the system. And if they hadn't, they wouldn't be in the position that they're in. You know, so you don't have to have somebody writing herd and micromanaging the, uh, you know, every journalist out in the field asking questions or every, every author writing a story. Uh, because if they hadn't already proven that they can frame all of their questions and, and, couch all of their reporting within the context of the institutional values of the the you know the organizations in which they work they just wouldn't have the opportunity to do the work that they do uh, so that's that's one place i think where and and to to internalize that um that system of values and that that very selective filter of what you can and cannot talk about that also is going to affect your political point of view. It's going to affect your view of what constitutes a legitimate protest, say, or a legitimate complaint. And so, yeah, that's going to have lots of invisible tentacles that work their way into parts of your life and parts of your interaction with other human beings, which are not obvious on the surface. So I think it's fair to say that both you and I don't like this bureaucratic culture or mentality very much. Um, yeah. And I think it's probably fair to say that it doesn't like us much either. Um, care to share any stories or anecdotes about your interactions with people uh, in the American bureaucracy? <laughs> and I don't mean the government just specifically. I mean the American society. Something that I experience a lot. I'm thinking right now about my my time at Comcast when I was just on the phone. It seemed to me from the job description and the uh, just the context of my interaction with customers, because I was doing phone tech support, that my primary goal when somebody called because their cable wasn't working or their internet wasn't working was to help them get it working again. But that was not my job function from the perspective of my employers. My employers wanted me first and foremost to sell the person calling new service, something to expand the uh, their monthly bill, to get them to order something from us that they weren't already getting. And if I could solve their problem in the process, all the better. I mean, ideally, they don't want that person calling back again. So my job is to, one, get them off the phone as soon as possible, two, sell them something, and three... And this is a distant third, fix their problem. <laughs> so this is a source of stress for me. And I can tell that it is a source of stress for many of my coworkers. But for other coworkers, there's no stress whatsoever because they have just adopted this sort of zombie-like mentality at work whereby – they don't even hear a person. And, and I'm making this up. You know, I don't know what's inside my, my coworkers' heads, but I, I take it as they don't even hear a person on the other end of the line. All they know is what it is they're supposed to say, what it is they're supposed to do in order to receive a satisfactory job rating or job evaluation. 
and they just say it and they have completely cut off that that mechanism or that re, that response for empathy with another person and i think you see that a lot when you you know say you're you're at college and you've gone to uh some academic advisor or you're at some office where and the person working behind the desk in that office is going to be there long after you have left the scene. And so they're caught up in the continuity of their experience and their work, you know, their work. And you are at best an inconvenience to them. Uh, they would like it, they'd like nothing better than for you to simply go away. And if you just give up trying to achieve what it is you're trying to achieve and leave defeated, well, then all the better for them. And I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has multiple examples in their life of coming up against somebody who seems to be just completely indifferent to the well-being of the human beings around them. And I think it is a result. It's, it's a self-defense mechanism. It is a, it is something that people have stumbled upon. They have discovered, oh, if I just stop caring, things get a lot easier. Or in some cases, we are interacting with someone who's actually hostile to our intentions or our desires. And you know that you're a proxy for somebody else in their life at that point. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit. I want to change the topic a little bit and talk about um, objects, the physical objects in our lives. There is a tremendous amount of stuff floating around this country I'm sure you've interacted with that as well. Uh, so much so to the point where we have reality television shows on the Discovery Channel and the Learning Channel and other uh, cable networks about storage wars and uh, pickers and other people who are basically making a living by going through other people's stuff. Um, this certainly seems like a society who it is in some stage or that is in some stage of catabolic decline. What are your thoughts on the endless stream of stuff floating around in the United States? You know, I'm standing in front of my computer. I'm talking into a microphone, which is on a mic stand. And this mic is plugged into a nice mixing board that uh, Justin Ritchie of the Extra Environmentalist podcast gave to me. But next to my computer is another mic, another nice mic that uh, a Seabrome listener bought for me. And then in boxes just below my computer are more microphones. And I have lots and lots of XLR cables about. And I have my, my digital audio recorder that I used for years and the new one that's replaced it. But I haven't gotten rid of the old one. So now when I go to do an interview out in the field, I have two and I set up, you know, I have the first one that I've used all along recording, and then I have the new one recording as well. So I have a backup recording. And I'm just looking at all of this stuff, and it's just accumulating around me. <laughs> and in terms of people making their livelihoods, picking through all this stuff, you know, good for them. Um, I'm, I'm glad that they have something to do, because so much of the problem, I think, that is afflicts our society is that we have not we have this expectation that everybody is supposed to have productive work and if you don't have productive work it's because you're shirking your responsibilities you're lazy and you don't deserve food shelter clothing health care and the works and yet our system our, our society our economy is increasingly um, automated so fewer and fewer people's labor is actually needed 
and people have to find so, you know they have to invent a job for themselves increasingly so those people who have made it big picking through other people's storage bins and whatnot you know god bless them uh, but in terms of all this stuff that just accumulates and even you know somebody like me of very modest means i have all of this electronic stuff that when I got it, it seemed so magical and whiz bang. And now that I'm not using it much anymore and I really should let go of it, there's still that, that residual feeling of, Oh, this is, this is technological magic here. I can't just let this go. Uh, and particularly with a collapse mentality. I remember when I was at the Eco Village Training Center, I, I was a big coffee drinker and I would buy a pretty cheap, you know, mass culture coffee in these enormous plastic jugs that had a tight fitting lid and a built in handle. And, you know, you're just supposed to throw it away when the coffee's gone. But I thought I could never build this. I could <laughs> never, I could never make a container like this. And after the collapse, a container like this will be so useful. So I should keep it. But you know, if I, if I get a new one every six weeks, eventually my tiny little living space will just be filled up with plastic containers. <laughs> Yes, they w it would be. <laughs> and then you would be on one of those shows like uh, Buried Alive or something like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's a fine line to be sure. But one of the things I notice about uh, James Kunstler's uh, World Made by Hand novels is kind of the absence of a lot of this stuff. And it's kind of something I – keep in the back of my mind like where did all this stuff go it's it's not just going to go away um now i know there are some people who are scavengers and the like but i would in in my version of even a catastrophic rapid collapse i would think there would be a lot more use and recycling of technology a lot more production of electricity electricity is not that hard to produce it's really easy to repurpose a lot of the existing machines we have everywhere uh, to run on biodiesel, to produce electricity, to be generators, I would think that a lot of that stuff would be repurposed. I would think so too, although a lot of the – if you're going to repurpose a lot of this stuff, you're going to need some supplies. You're going to need some things that might not be at hand, and if you don't have gasoline or means to travel long distances, you, you could be in a situation where – Collectively, we've got all the stuff that we need in order to get things back up and running, you know, not maybe at the level they were before, but at a, certainly at an acceptable level. But we don't have the uh, the means to move things around and get the right people to the right supplies. Well, but I still think you would see small groups having things like radios, for example. Well, I I enjoy Jim's World Made by Hand novels. I don't take them as uh, really – serious speculative fiction i think that i take them as adventure stories set set in a romanticized version of a post-collapse small town existence but yeah i agree i think you know there, there are no bicycles in the world made by hand uh novels and jim's position on that is that you know bike tires are made of rubber they go flat uh if you don't have the manufacturing base to create new bicycle tires well then bikes aren't going to be around very long and i think they probably will i mean i think a bicycle with uh, solid wooden wheels is more useful than no bicycle at all and i think that uh yeah the, the world if we were to have the off-the-shelf peak oil fast collapse tomorrow uh, 10 years from now upstate new york would not look like the world made by hand novels
Camo, anything else that you have been doing or working on or thinking about uh, that you would like to share or open up as a topic on this podcast? Sure. Uh, I will let you know that long before Sea Realm was a, uh, a website devoted to podcasts, it was a website devoted to webcomics. And after a hiatus of about 10 years, I've started doing comics again. And so it'll be a while before they're up on the web because I've, I'm doing an arc of 20 of these big full page, um, like Sunday style strips and I'm drawing them on paper now. And then I plan to get yet more digital technology. I'm going to get a, uh, hopefully a Surface Pro 3, but some sort of pen input device, um, that allows me to draw and actually look, you know, and see the line emerging where I'm drawing rather than drawing on one surface and looking at a screen to see the line emerge. And uh, once I I have the 20 strips done on paper and I get whatever device I'm going to be using, then I'm going to get into Manga Studio, which is a program I've been reading a lot about and watching how-to videos on using. And I'm really excited about it. I remember doing a comic back in like 2000, 2001 about – the, the miraculous uh, sort of comics creation studio in a, a flat tablet type computer that I thought was just a few years away. And turns out it was further away than I thought it would be. But I, I hope I'm close to it now. So Sea Realm is the, the comic will not displace the podcast, but it will supplement the, the Sea Realm website will become something that there'll be a reason to visit. I mean, if you if you're subscribed to the Sea Realm RSS, you could. You know, you could enjoy the Sea Realm for years on end and never once go to the website, and I'm going to change that. Now, I will tell you, I will be one of the first people in line for a Sea Realm graphic novel, if you are so inclined. <laughs> I don't know that it will be a graphic novel exactly, because the um, the style of, of of comics that I do, at least in the past, hasn't so much been a continuous narrative, uh, so much as sort of a, a phantasmagoria where characters – are not bound by you know the laws of space and time, and they uh, they're basically just commenting on on the world and uh, sort of in engaging in this process of one-upmanship and just sort of verbal jousting. But that actually has changed in the the most recent comics that I've done, and uh, the characters have voluntarily left this realm, which is the sea realm, and stepped into the real world, and they're going to be in Brooklyn, and uh, so. Maybe it would lend itself to a graphic novel, but there will certainly be collected, uh, printed editions in, in the fullness of time. What can we expect um, upcoming from the Sea Realm podcast in terms of themes? Uh, maybe not so much in specific guests, but just themes or things you are interested in exploring in more detail. Well, there's a huge climate summit coming up in New York City, and there's uh, people coming from all over the country to do a big climate march. So I'll be talking to a lot of those people. There's an, there's a conference coming up here in New York on techno utopianism. So that's, that's right up my alley. I'll be talking to people about that. Um, I've, I've got guests who have agreed to be on the podcast and theoretically I could call them up at any time and say, Hey, let's record that interview. But I've been meaning to, you know, read a book or do something else in preparation for the interview, which I haven't yet done. So, um, Hopefully, some of those will come to fruition. Since I moved here, I have been, with the help of Olga, uh, stalking Mike Daisy, trying to get him on the show. And he, every time I, I see him in person, he says, yeah, sure, just give me a call or, you know, we'll set it up. How about next week? And it, it never happens. You know, as soon as I'm – as soon as we're not physically face-to-face, -face, 
it's it's dead air. I don't get any response. But hopefully that will, will come to fruition. I went to a show of his just recently. It was a, you know, he does these one-man monologues where he's just sitting behind a table uh, on stage and just talking. And he did a mashup of Moby Dick and um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, talking about, you know, how, how the film came to be made and, uh, you know, why it was so brilliant. And then uh, juxtaposing that with, with Moby Dick and... It was so much fun for me. I loved that. So I'd love to get him on the show to talk about Star Trek. Well, not that long ago, but certainly um, quite a while ago, you created a podcast called The Sea Realm Vault. Uh, tell people about The Sea Realm Vault and how they can access that. Uh, just go to SeaRealm.com and look for the uh, the link. It says Join the Vault, but The Vault is a second week- weekly podcast that I do. It, you know, The Sea Realm comes out on Wednesday. Point blank, period, Wednesday is the day it comes out. The vault sort of floats around. I could put it out any time between Friday and Monday, and it's on time. And on one occasion, I published it on Tuesday. So it it floats around. It's, you know, the Sea Realm is an hour, period. It is an hour show. The vault can be shorter. It can be longer. It's more free form. Uh, the Sea Realm is an interview-based show. There's sometimes interviews on the vault, and sometimes it's just me sort of ranting into a microphone, and sometimes... Like I, I read an entire book on the vault. I read the entirety of um, the Unabomber's Manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Discontents. Um, it's it's just more of a – it's less structured and there's more room for surprise and also I'm less guarded on the Sea Realm vault. I will say things to the vault audience that I will never say on the main Sea Realm podcast. Did you get any backlash from reading Ted Kaczynski's manifesto? Um. I don't think so. I mean, the only people who heard it were people who <clears throat> already enjoy the Sea Realm and were interested enough to pay some money to get more content. So uh, I've been criticized in the past, even before I started the Sea Realm podcast, for thinking or suggesting that there is something to be taken seriously in that manifesto. Um, and I think there is. Well... If you would like to access that or any other information or programming on the Sea Realm Vault, as KMO said, visit SeaRealm.com and click on that link, and you can support the work that KMO is doing. Um, many years of probably what missing a week only once is that correct in your podcast uh, release yes. schedule? That's I, I was in the Amazon at the time. Well, that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> so. Uh, you are quite a prolific podcaster, and week after week you provide great content. Thank you for that service. Most of it is free, but if you want to support what Camo does, uh, subscribe to the Sea Realm Vault. Thank you very much. Thank you, Camo, for being on the Agro Innovations podcast today, and thank you again for all the great work that you do. Oh, it is my pleasure. That concludes my interview with KMO of the Sea Realm Podcast. I will link to the Sea Realm website on the show notes for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. So you can check that out if you are not already familiar with the Sea Realm Podcast. Episode number 145 of the Agro Innovations Podcast generated a lot of debate and controversy online, which was welcome. That was certainly part of my intention with creating what was a provocative title and calling it the failure of permaculture. 
but many of the themes that were brought up in that particular episode will continue to be explored on the Agro Innovations podcast. And some of you have asked for some case studies of collective action and or economies of scale being applied uh, in worker cooperative type environments. And you will not be disappointed. I have some of those interviews already recorded. And upcoming, I have a really great interview with someone who is very influential in the permaculture movement. Uh, That will be two episodes from now, I believe, or maybe even three episodes from now. The interview has been recorded, but I have some other interviews that I would like to get out of the archives first. So you have that to look forward to, and I'm going to keep you in suspense. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I promise you, you will not be disappointed, so stay tuned. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, please visit creativecommons.org. And I noticed that many people are embedding the audio for the Agro Innovations podcast on their websites or taking content and reproducing it in their blogs. In the vast majority of the cases, the attribution is correctly displayed on those pages. And so I want to thank you listeners for doing that. It just increases the exposure uh, for the podcast and for some of the things that I write. And I greatly appreciate that. And I also really appreciate some of the debate and conversation that happens on Reddit and Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere about some of the topics that we cover here. So please keep that up. Keep sharing some of the content from here, especially when uh, you think it's important or it resonates with you or it may be controversial in some way. I certainly appreciate uh, the conversation. I think it really helps to tighten my thinking around some of these issues as well. A lot of smart people are thinking about and talking about these things on the internet. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.